Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atlantic Aviation. Atlantic Aviation provides aircraft ground support in 80 plus locations across the United States. I am proud to be partnered with a company that puts their people first and highly values diversity and inclusion. Atlantic Aviation's vision and mission is evident through their relentless focus on culture, safety, and service. Experience the Atlantic attitude today. Check out www.atlanticaviation.com to see all 80 plus locations and plan your next visit. Our guest today to launch us into season three is Lalitia Davila. Lalitia, who joins me from London, is an aviation consultant working for Ascend, a consultancy arm of the aviation analytics firm, Sirium. She is also an aerospace engineer and a board member for the Royal Aeronautical Society. Originally from India, Lalitia grew up in the United Arab Emirates to a family who are passionate about education. Following her father's footsteps, Lalitia decided to become an engineer at a young age. In 2013, she received her bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering and obtained a master's in aviation safety in 2015. In my conversation with Lalitia, she talks about her career in the Middle East in a male-dominated field where she felt the cultural pressures and expectations of being a working woman. Lalitia, welcome to the Aviate with Shasta podcast. Lalitia, how are you doing? Welcome to the Aviate with Shasta podcast. Thank you so much. I'm doing great. I'm very excited to speak with you and I'm very excited about this podcast as well. So thank you for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. So our relationship goes back a couple of years. Uh, when I moved to the UAE, I was connected to you by the Women in Aviation chapter and the chapter president, Mervet Sultan, said, you have to meet this woman. She's so amazing. She is probably... Um, just someone you need in your corner when you're in the Middle East. She's very knowledgeable, supportive. I mean, she just kept going on about you. And I had the chance to meet you um, through WhatsApp. And I was like, Mervet is 100% right. This woman is so amazing. Um, so I'm glad we're able to bring you on to the show this season. And I want you to just take us back to your childhood. Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? And when did you discover your passion for aviation? Yeah, sure. I mean, I agree with Marvet. Uh, Marvet, I'll count her as one of my mentors, and she's been very instrumental in my career in aviation as well. But I will correct you, and I'll say that our relationship actually goes back to more than a couple of years. I first met right. you when you were doing your trip around the world. And That's when you right. came to Dubai, I was introduced to you by Joe Mayers, not an amazing person. Right, uh, right. But that, that tells you that I've been in the UAE quite a bit. In fact, I've grown up in the UAE. 
I'm originally from India, from a place called Hyderabad, which a lot of you might be familiar with. But I, my parents moved to the UAE long, long time ago. I did all my schooling in the UAE. Uh, but for my engineering studies, I went back to India. That's because at the time in the UAE, there weren't a lot of engineering colleges offering aerospace engineering. So I went back to India, did four years of aerospace engineering there, and then I returned to the Middle East, back to Abu Dhabi where I started working for a company called um, McLaren's Aviation. Um, so going back to my childhood, it's, it's, very, it's very interesting because, um, as first of all, culturally, you know, I'm an, I'm an Indian person, but I grew up in the Middle East in, in a quite a different culture. Um, that, that brings about its own set of interesting uh, challenges. However, the good part when I compare notes now is that my father was an engineer as well. I have an older sister. She's an engineer as well. So my career path to go into engineering was almost a no-brainer compared to a lot of other young girls who have, you know, a lot of obstacles to get to to get that stage. So I feel like I've benefited through that. I discovered my passion for space, really, and then later for aviation when uh, the NASA astronaut Kalpana Chavala uh, came onto the TV, unfortunately, in the tragic childhood accident, really. But she inspired generations of young girls in India and I was just one one more person she touched in her tragic accident and just really got my interest ignited into space. I started reading all about rockets and whatnot and then I started reading about NASA and there was a student involvement program at the time NASA ran. So I got involved with that. And again, I was one of the very few students in the UAE who'd gone all the way to the NASA program. It was meant for American kids, really. Uh, but my father really helped me through that project. He almost entirely did that project on his own, I think, considering I was in grade four. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, now that I look back at it, I feel like half the project was his work. But anyway, it, it was really helpful for me because I was just doing a lot of research. You know, the internet was in our dialogue phase at the time. For people yeah. who can remember with all the funny <laughs> noises it used to make when connecting. Um, so we used to connect to the internet on our big desktop and, you know, I would just read things like how stuff works or NASA actually produced a lot of articles then about their K-12 STEM outreach program. And that was really helpful. And funny enough, there was an Ask Yahoo at the time. So you kids could write to Yahoo and ask about things like, oh, why do the planets behave this way? Or, you know, well, what sort of fuel is used in a rocket and that sort of thing. So I would sort of go through these question and answers, print them out. And my father yeah. would put them in a manual. So I got basically a book of space that I could just read my leisure. So um, a lot of focus on math and science that came from my parents as well. For both of us, for my sister and myself, we were encouraged to do math and science, which again is a bit unusual when, again, now that I think about it, it's yeah. a bit unusual and I've right. benefited from that uh, during my childhood. But yes, I can, I, I think that gave me a good understanding of why we need role models like a child for myself and many others. Yeah. And the importance of having parents who are supportive and who will encourage you to do things, to do hard things like math, science, engineering, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, first, I'm so sorry. You're absolutely right. We were connected during the, the global flight. I, as you were talking about it, I'm like, that's right. Um, but it, I I feel like I just know you so well and, and like um, we've gone back and forth throughout the years and it's like, <laughs> 
you're just such a special person to me. Um, and oh, so, yeah, you. thank you again for coming here. Um, and, and I love your background story because you bring to light something that I think is so important. Um, you had very supportive parents and you were two girls, no brothers, I'm assuming. It was no, just you and your no sister. Brothers. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting because um, I come from a family of six girls and um, we were pretty much taught at a young age, you know, to be young ladies and, you know, do things that girls typically do. I mean, we never really talked about like technical careers or, or, you know, any of that. And I didn't get a lot of that in school either. Um, but when I decided I wanted to become a pilot, I um, shared the news first with my dad and I was expecting his reaction to be kind of like, no, you can't do that. Or it's like a very male dominated industry. That's not for you. Um, but he actually was shocked and he, um, he just kind of gave me this look and said, okay. And then, you know, after I processed his reaction and like a day went by, I asked my dad, I was like, you know, when I told you I wanted to be a pilot, why did you like hesitate and you were agreeable? And he said, well, right before Afghanistan collapsed, um, during the Afghan Soviet war, I was on track to go to India and to flight train and become a pilot. Um, but then those opportunities were closed off because of the war. So in my head, I thought, well, maybe one day I'll have a son who will become a pilot and live out that dream for me. And then he had six girls and thought, okay, well, that's not going to happen. And so fast forward to that day, he was just shocked. And um, he was like, I don't have a son, but I have a daughter and I want her to, to live that dream. So because my father was so supportive, I felt like the rest of my family um, didn't give me as much of a hard time. Um, and so I totally understand when you say that you had your father's support, your family's support, that that really helped enable you and give you more opportunities um, versus if they, they weren't supportive. So I totally get it. So um, how is it that you all came to the UAE? Was your dad working there in Abu Dhabi? Um, how, how did you get that opportunity to, to grow up in Abu Dhabi? Um, that, that's it. At the time, uh, there were a lot of people and my father had gotten a job in Abu Dhabi at the time. Uh, he moved first and then, you know, the family moved shortly after. Okay, so you have spent majority of your career in the UAE. In 2013, you worked as a graduate teaching assistant at one of the most prestigious um, universities in the UAE. It's called the Emirates Aviation University. Throughout the years, you've served as a safety consultant for a startup, low-cost uh, airline carrier. You worked for McLaren's Aviation in Abu Dhabi for over seven years, which is quite incredible, working as an engineer. Um, what is it like for a woman in aviation in the UAE? If you can paint that picture for us. Yeah, I just have kind of, the, the UAE, it's, it's a very strange and odd mix. So it's a mix of traditional thinking that comes with what you'd normally perceive to be a Middle Eastern culture. But you also have a lot of forward thinking. You know, half the aviation workforce is actually women in, in the UAE. There are a lot of Emirati women in the aviation workforce. There's lots of focus on developing talent, improving retention, showcasing role models. There's an amazing amount of good work being done in the UAE, and particularly in the UAE, I would say, um, because it's slightly different to the rest of the Middle East in which 
The rest of the Middle East is a little bit more traditional than the UAE, which has just evolved to be more cosmopolitan, more in line with the Western world, so to speak. So it's built an odd mix. In the UAE, on a day-to-day basis, yeah, again, you, you have all these amazing efforts, but you also have on a day-to-day basis the local ingrained culture of not having women in the workplace. It doesn't go away easily, right? And especially as you go outside the UAE and into the Middle East, and that, that's where I had a lot of experience with. Um, in general, a lot of women don't take women seriously. I've had plenty of meetings in which, you know, they'd be talking to my to my boss, who's, who's a man, and they'd sort of plain ignore me, even though I'm, I'm the one asking the question and the answer goes to him. I'm just like, okay, I'm right here. Please, can you speak with me? Um, or there are a lot more meetings, even actually a lot more meetings, I'd say, where my boss and I would walk in together and, you know, he's, he's older and he's, he's obviously a man, and we walk in together. And the automatic assumption is that, He's a surveyor and I'm his personal assistant or his secretary. That's a sort of, you know, without even questioning the assumption that that, that impression has been made already. Um, the good news is that my, my boss, David, he would always introduce me as, okay, she's an engineer, she's my colleague, you know, she's not my secretary, but the automatic assumption yeah. does does present himself a challenge things like applying for visas you know sometimes we'd apply for visas and the client would have to apply for those visas for us i'd get a letter saying oh yeah please issue a visa for you know son's person and blah dear uh assistant yeah that would happen a lot and also the other thing that i noticed was the age factor it's it's a it's a big dichotomy, really, in what we're telling women, because every yeah. you open the internet or you go outside, there's all this messaging about, oh, you're supposed to look younger, reverse aging, and this and that. But actually, in the workplace, they respect older women. Yeah. It's interesting, because I've had meetings, um, sometimes I'm the only person, but sometimes there are other women, and I can see that if they're older women, then they're far more respected by the men in the room. Whereas, because I'm younger, they don't seem to take me as seriously. But again, you go outside that workplace and you're just constantly bombarded with messages about how to look younger. Whereas I was on the other side and I'm trying to project this air of experience and I'm trying to speak as if I have more experience, dress up as if I was older. It's just very um, different, I would say. Yeah. I would summarize it as there's lots of support available in the Middle East for working with women in aviation, but also the cultural perceptions are still there and they're hard to shift. It'll take time. So when you were in a situation where you were asking a question and the person you were asking the question to wasn't acknowledging you or, or looking at you, um, what did you do that helped throughout you know, your career? Were there any things that you realized, maybe if you questioned it differently or used a different tone? I mean, I don't know. Was there Were there any things that helped you to have these people take you seriously? I don't know if it would be me. I think it would be my male allies that would help that help me in my career. So the, throughout the years, I've had my colleagues who'd say, like I said, just the introduction in a meeting, you know, when you walk into a meeting room, he would introduce himself and then introduce me as engineer. She's going to be handling your files. She's going to be asking you some questions today. You know, setting the tone and that coming from your male ally was really helpful for me and really important, I felt. Um, 
Will that happen with everyone? No. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about a tone or something that I would have changed because it's just really hard to get those get those perceptions across. Um, I I do participate in a lot of women in aviation meetings, and I know we'll we'll, we'll think about cultural perspectives slightly differently. But the advice that I've gotten from other women is, you know, just to be more determined, more more empathetic you know asking the questions setting your tone that sort of thing but i found that those things generally don't work in the middle eastern culture you know if i walked into a room and was yeah. very domineering and just started questioning people that would automatically bring the barriers down not up and really wouldn't help my case yeah. in being acknowledged or respected really as it was more of you have to lean into wow. the culture there is and the culture there is in the Middle East is that you'd have to have male allies to help support you. You know what I what I find interesting and the reason why I asked that question is um when I would go to an event with my flight suit on and I, I went to the UAE, specifically Dubai, um, but when I got to like Asia and, and other parts of the world, when I had my flight suit on, it was I could instantly tell that people acknowledged me and spoke to me differently. And when I spoke, they would listen and they would give me respect. But I could go the very next day to meet the same group of people in my everyday clothes. And the tone was different. And I, for me, I realized the, the flight suit gave me um, a sense of like uh, um, identity for these people to kind of take me seriously, uh, which I thought was interesting. Um, and, and one incident that really sticks out to me is when I landed in Sri Lanka, um, I was in my flight suit and I was like, you know, moving the plane around and like, um, and, and they were like, let us help you. And I, I said, you know, it's best if I handle the airplane. I know it's a big plane, but I can maneuver it around and park it. Um, and then the next day I showed up with the same group of people and they were like, they were just treating me like you know, I'm this very delicate, gentle person and I, I shouldn't be really leaving my hotel room. And it was an issue that I wanted to go to the airplane, you know, with, with myself and not a big full of a group of security. It just seemed very different. And I was encouraged not to go to like the local grocery store. Um, and, and so, yeah, the, the flight suit just, I guess it gave me um, just this identity of like, I'm a serious person and I'm a capable person, but if I was in my regular clothes, it was, the tone was so different. Um, so that's, that's interesting that you say that it was your counterparts and the way they introduced you is what really helped you. Um, since we're kind of on this topic, I'd love to know internationally, um, what are some of the barriers for women based on your observations Um for women who are entering the industry, what are some things that is causing them to be successful in the very to uh, to not be successful in the very beginning of their careers? Sure, I, I can particularly speak for the UAE, where um, I returned as graduate, and then through the RES, the Aeronautical Society, I did a lot of work with undergraduates, and I think the biggest one of the biggest challenges is availability of graduate roles. There's just not enough opportunity. In the Middle East and in India, actually, we have a lot of graduates who are females, but we don't have enough graduate roles available. 
So you have highly educated, skilled talent, um, but due to lack of opportunity, they're unable to get into the industry. So they end up going to other industries or, you know, maybe not working at all, especially for women. Particularly in the UAE, we've had, we have great educational institutions like Emirates Aviation University. We have high colleges of technology. So that's fun for men and women, really but no graduate roles because a lot of the companies that are based in the Middle East, aviation companies, you know, we have Airbus, we have Boeing, we have everybody, but it's not engineering presence there. It's generally a sales presence or a commercial presence. So you have a lot of graduate engineers, but they don't have jobs to go into. Um, and that's one of the things that we were working on very hard at the Royal Aeronautical Society. We tried to put, bring in career affairs or showcase projects or competitions in which we bring in young people, ask them to deliver presentations and we'll invite the companies to come and see their talent, to come and, you know, see what, what they're losing out on, so to speak, so that those people might have a better opportunity going forward. So that's that's one big issue, a lack of opportunity, but also the cultural expectations. There are huge cultural barriers to for women to going into aviation, for women to, to retain to be retained in aviation. And so those are some things that internationally are far more relevant than in the Western world, especially in terms of graduate roles, I suppose. In in the rest of the world, especially nowadays, you hear the opposite issue. You have too many jobs, but not enough people to fill them with. No, that's, that's so interesting with the cultural piece of it, because I, I lived in the UAE for about two years, and I think it was, um, it, you know, it was tough because I went in there thinking... In, in America, you have like um, you have this culture around aviation where it's it's based a lot on passion. Like people are in it. They fly airplanes because they have this big passion about it. And when I went to um, Dubai, I quickly learned that it was not a lot of passion, but a lot of sales. And like it was very it was an industry, very sales focused. Um, and I understand you need both. You need the passion and the sales. Uh, to create a business in this industry. Um, but I was shocked. I was like, where do people gather to go fly, you know, just on a Saturday morning? And they're like, well, we don't do that. There's not a big general aviation here. No. Um, and, and so that was a bit surprising. And I thought like, well, what do people do who have a big passion for aviation? Is there a place that they go to exercise, you know, th that passion? Or, I mean, you can't really fly... Air, small airplanes unless if you're flight training but is is there something that i missed in the middle east where you can really exercise this passion or gather and have those conversations or places to go like hangers to talk does that exist there or is it really sales focused um no, now that you mention it, yeah, you're right. There are a couple of flying clubs in Dubai, and you know, hard, if you're if you're super passionate about it, you'd go there. But growing up, and even in in just generally talking to the aviation community there, no, there aren't a lot of places that you can, uh, I suppose, have a casual conversation about aviation. It's it's tricky about your job, and. You have a lot of conferences, you have a lot of events. That's where people gravitate towards. Every month or so, there's a big aviation event in Dubai. That's where most people would meet, talk about 
work that they're doing, but also things that they're interested in, value on different markets, the way they're moving or, but now there's, there's generally not a lot too much of general aviation there. Drones are picking up now. You do have hobby clubs for, for flying around drones, but again, the airspace is quite restricted. And there's a lot of the UAE that you simply can't fly your drone in. So again, that's quite limited as well. I think you're, you're right. It's more business oriented. Going back to something that you just said about uh, cultural expectations. Um, so it was interesting because when I told my grandma, who is like a hardcore, traditional, very culturally immersed into the Afghan culture, um, when I told her I wanted to be a pilot, she was really sad for me. She said, like, who is going to marry a woman? Like, which Afghan man is going to marry a woman who's away all the time? And how are you going to have kids? Like, she was just genuinely so sad that I was limiting myself um, within our culture by pursuing this career. And it was hard to kind of explain to her, like, you know, if, if I don't get that opportunity, at least I get the opportunity to be a part of an industry that I really love and do something that not a lot of Afghan girls do, which is to fly. Uh, what were some of your cultural um, expectations when you decided you wanted to become an engineer? And I get that it might have been different from you because you come from a very educated um, family who was supportive. Um, so I'd love to hear what were some of the cultural expectations for you and what are in addition to that, what are some of the cultural expectations um, for the women that you've worked with? You hit the nail on the head when you mentioned the uh, marriage word. Now, women have cultural expectations around them around the world, right? So, you know, th there's a lot of similarities. We all have a higher burden of handling work, family, finances, pressure to be this overall do-it-all person. Uh, there's an overall cultural expectation of a women's career as being secondary to the man's. But this is across the world. This is something you see overall. What you see particularly in the Middle Eastern and Asian cultures is marriage and independence. These are things that really have nothing to do with your career, but play a gigantic role in your career. In Middle Eastern and Asian cultures, a lot of the, the cultures that the children will live with their parents. And when I say children, it's up till the age they get married. This is boys and girls, it's not just girls. Uh, they would live with their parents until they're, and then that brings us to the concept of marriageable age, right? So. Till when are you living with your parents? You live with your parents until you get married and you have to get married at the so-called marriageable age, which, which is what your parents will set for you. So historically, it used, mom and my grandmother got married when she was 11. My mom got married when she was 20. So the, the marriageable age <laughs> shifts with every generation, which is great news, I suppose. It shifts later and later, but there is an age. And beyond that age, you're, you're considered to be low in your marriageable prospects. And that's the, again, difference between, I suppose, a sort of a Western perspective and an Indian, and an Indian Middle Eastern Asian perspective is that the parents feel an obligation to get their children married. It's not about, oh, I'm going to get married when I want to. It's more about the parents' responsibility to get you married. Again, this applies to both boys and girls in, in these cultures. Now, this marriageable age is again for both boys and girls, but for boys, it tends to be a bit higher. 
So for example, in my families, um, the, the men's marriageable age was about 28, 30, whereas for girls, it was 22, 23, just after college graduation, basically. Um, so you see it has changed. You know, there's no expectation for me to get married at 11 or 18, but there's certainly an expectation for you to get married after college. Oh, 100%. <laughs> so that that's one thing. And then once once you do get this marriage sorted, you have a sense of, their parents feel that, especially for daughters, now we get into more of the, the girl-specific things. These are the concept of having less control in a marriage. They say things to you during your childhood like, oh, we don't know if your husband's going to like you doing this job. So, you know, we better stick to roles that are more suitable or more acceptable to, the, to a man's family. Um, this concept of the marriage being more important than anything else. So, you know, if a girl, young girl says, oh, I want to be a CEO, they say, well, you know, you're going to start off as yeah, an engineer, you're going to become a manager, but then you might need to have children that you need to take care of. So I don't think you're going to get all the way to the CEO. No. So why bother? Yeah. Um, this concept of duty of care in a marriage. Again, you know, when you have children, the woman is automatically expected to take on far more responsibility than than the man. Again, this is common across the world, but I suppose what an additional layer is in the Middle East nation cultures, you have the elderly parents angle as well. And it's not generally the girl's parents. It's not my parents. There's an expectation for me to take care of my husband's parents. Right. Uh, even at the expense of, you know, quitting my job. Right, right. And that brings me to another fascinating observation, quitting your job. So a lot of the girls in my cohort, as soon as they, they graduated along with me, they got jobs, again, from the, from the pool of big graduates, most of them got jobs, fantastic. Couple of years, they hit the marriageable age, um, found partners, and then they quit their job. Yeah. Why? Because, you know, the, the guy may be somewhere else and they have to relocate or even if they're somewhere else, they might have had different expectations of how their life goes. So it's almost automatic. And in fact, I got asked when I was getting married, are you going to be continuing to working? Are you, are you going to continue to work after your marriage? Why wouldn't I? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why wouldn't I? But then my, my girlfriends, they were quite surprised. Right. And they said, well... And I go, right, I go to be still in Abu Dhabi. I said, yeah, my, my husband's going to be in Abu Dhabi as well. So, yes. I said, oh, so you're not quitting. I'm like, no, I'm not quitting. Why would I quit? Right. But it's, it's the, almost become the norm, really, is that, you know, as, as soon as you get engaged, go in the next day, hand in your notice, that sort of thing. So a marriage that's a very personal concept becomes one of the biggest factors, I feel, in determining your career progression, it determines the choices you make. Do you want to become a doctor or a nurse or an engineer? It, become, it, it matters how long you're going to work at that company. You might join the best company ever, and this company might be giving you amazing workplace policies, progression opportunities. They're doing a lot to retain women and whatnot. But your family is saying, sorry, you've got to get married and do other things. So it doesn't really matter what the company is doing. You're still going to leave. That, that's, a cultural, that's a cultural expectation. And it matters how far you get in your company, assuming you've passed through those first couple of hurdles. 
you're at the next stage where you probably have kids, you're going into more senior positions, you probably have to spend a lot more time at work. And once again, you have your family constantly saying to you, why are you spending so much time at work? You need to focus on your on your family. And that's that's where your responsibility lies as a woman. So as you're talking about um, these cultural barriers in marriage, this takes me back to um, when I was doing my master's degree at Embry-Riddle. I had met uh, one of my classmates was from the Middle East, and she was there with her husband. Her husband was working on his bachelor. She was working on her master's degree. Incredibly smart. Um, Arabic was her first language, but she... She did so well in the master's program. We graduated at the same time. She went back to her homeland and immediately started working um, for the government in aviation. And she was really making history because women were not in these types of aviation roles. Um, while she was doing her master's, she had a first child. And then as she got into her career back in her native country, she had a second child and she called me one day and she said, I am the only woman working in my department and I am the first woman in my country to be in this type of a role. And she's like, but I'm being pressured by my family and my in-laws that my place should be at home raising my children. And she said, you know, she came from a very well-to-do family, so she had a lot of help home. But there was this additional expectation that it's it's not enough. You need to be at home raising your children. Um, and that's where you belong. And she said, like, I don't know what to do. I, I've worked so hard and I've come so far. And she had two girls. And she said, I'm doing this to prove to my girls that they they can be successful and they can be in technical careers and they, they should pursue that but I don't know what to do. I'm being like mom guilted here. Um, and I, I honestly, I didn't know what to tell her because this is like, I, I didn't have a lot of words. I, I just kept going back to, you know, your kids, you know, your situation, whatever you do, you know, it's going to be the right decision. Um, but I don't know if women have come up to you about this whole marriage and what does my career look like? especially when you invest so much of your life and money and time to then get so far in all of that change with marriage. Um, I don't know what your advice has been to women on this topic. I have had, uh, I don't have too much experience on the motherhood side of it, but this, I've worked with girls who are younger than me. They're asking me about marriage. They're like, okay, please give us career advice. And I'm saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you can, can take this kind of job and whatnot. But they're saying, well, how can I tell my parents I don't want to get married just yet? Um, again, I don't have the answers. I, it's, it's a very personal thing. Yeah. However, um, I, have, I had a conversation with one of my uh, colleagues recently, and she said, okay, I want to do, uh, she's done a bachelor's in aeronautical engineering. She wants to pursue additional education. And she was saying, okay, what courses do you recommend? Oh my God, this one, that one, whatever. And then she says, okay, see, I have to do all these things before I get married. So I have a time limit there. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, you do. And she says, well, dear, let's be real. I have a time limit. And unfortunately, I have to agree. I'm saying, it is true. You do have time limit and you know, you have to choose your course based on 
how long is it going to take you to finish? As you said, investing money, how long is it going to take you to um, reap the results of how much money you put in? How long is it going to take you to repay your student debt, student loan debt, if you're taking on any? And, you know, especially a lot of women, when they get married, I've, I've had some of my friends who actually work finance jobs. And the really ironic part is that when they go home, they have to pay their whole salary to their husband for him to manage this whole finances. Wow. Oh my <laughs> Think God. about it. Yeah. You know, these girls are handling the finances of a large multinational company, but apparently they cannot manage the household finances. That's the perception. That's, that's their family situation. And they're okay with that. I've had, friends of mine who say, yeah, I got a raise at work, but I can't share that with my husband, with my partner, because if they know I got a raise at work, they'll take that money. And I want to be able to say that and it's, it's not that they want to go and spend it exorbitantly on themselves. They're just like, I want to save that for, for a future project or a house or to buy or a course or something like that. There are no easy answers. As you said, it's very situation specific, but there are, there are tips, I would say. Um, I, I've, I've been part of quite a few women aviation groups, particularly in the Middle East. And because of, these are local groups, everybody shares similar issues. And, you know, we're able to exchange things like, oh, this is how you approach a conversation with your parents. You know, you, you sit them down and you say, look, these are the number of hours I've spent in my education. I know that I'd have to get married one day. I understand that's a cultural expectation. However, I'd like to have my own place in the marriage. I, I want to be my own person before going into a marriage. And that's some of the conversation I had with my parents saying, my job is as important as my to be partner's job. And that's a very hard concept for Middle Eastern Asian parents to understand. There's still a lot of focus on on the kind of guy you're going to marry. It's like, oh, you know, you can teach us, for example, love by the Asian community. The love goes to be teachers because that's a very acceptable profession. You know, they, they get more, they get more, they get better prospects. As, as you're studying, it's a lot about, oh, what can you study that'll get you better prospects in marriage, not in careers, in marriage. Right. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Yeah. And these are the conversations I'm having with, with younger girls. And I'm thinking, these are not the kind of conversations I should be having with you. But here's where we are. And you, you can't ignore that part of your life. You, you just can't say, yeah, I'll do what I want and leave that sort itself out now. So this just makes me think, because, you know, every situation is different. Every parent's circumstances, financial, career, I mean... There, I feel like there is no right answer. Um, but as I like reflect on this, um, because I'm I'm impacted by my own family and my cousins, and um, when I spent time in in the Middle East, I saw it for myself. And I think if we learn more about women like yourself, who you know, yes, you your situation is different because you had very supportive parents and you are in your industry and you are working and you're flourishing. Um, the more that we have women like you 
sharing their stories, their experiences. It just opens the mind culturally that women can do it. And it's it's not only benefiting society, but we are teaching our children of where women belong in society nowadays and what they're capable of doing and how things are changing. So I don't have the answer either, um, but I think one way to go about it is just to bring different perspectives of women who are doing it, doing it well, and just proving the narrative to be opposite. The, the issue is that that's a fantastic solution, but very difficult to implement because, again, women are constantly balancing a lot of things. And yeah. if you get too personal and you like to share your vulnerabilities by talking with your parents, and again, once you have children, if you're talking about uh, you know how difficult it is, and if you're being really personal and raw like that, right. then women are yeah. penalized for that. You know, you're, you're not appearing strong enough. You're not, you're not seeming like someone who can handle the pressure. We feel like you know you're you're crumbling under the pressure, that sort of thing. And then you have the other side. If you appear to be this really strong woman in aviation, you can do it all, got it all sorted, very organized, very planned. Then you lose out on inspiring other girls who feel like, oh yeah, she's she can do it, but I can't. It's it's a very tricky balance to do, and it's really hard for for people in the industry today. Um, but I would rather err on the side of being real and being open to sharing our stories and being saying, okay, yeah, I do have all these challenges, but I'm getting through them. I'm, this is what I'm trying to do to get through them. Um, it's working, it's not working. And then if you share your your strategies about how you're dealing with the issue, for example, for me, it was trying to have honest conversations with my parents, but also taking space when I needed to. It was just a matter of physically being in a different space. My parents were in Sharjah and I moved to Abu Dhabi to be close to my job. And it made a big difference. I wasn't going back home every single evening to just hear about, you know, what, what are you going to do about marriage? When are you going to get married? That sort of thing now. Whereas I know that a lot of girls are not doing that. It wears you out. It's a lot to take. Right, right. I've, I've had cousins who said, I'm just going to get married so I don't have to talk about this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And like check off my woman duties, you know, that everyone yeah. has for me. Um, and it's, it's sad. It needs to change. And you know, like I realize some aviation companies around the world, airliners don't even have a policy for maternity, you know, because they're, they're not thinking about women and how they are part of the workforce. But time after time after time, we're finding that women are not only very capable at flying or engineering or directing as an air traffic controllers or even fixing you know, as a mechanic, we're very capable, but we're also very good at it. And so I think we're at a very transitional time where it's it's shifting and this older generation is realizing a lot and they're very nervous. Um, and, and generationally, we're finding a lot of people just getting creative about how to stay on with their career and and like you said, being very real and transparent, because I think building this very pretty picture that you can do it all. And 
I mean, that's just, that's not reality. And I think a lot of people don't buy it. Do you feel like we're coming to a place where a lot of these cultural norms are changing around the world or? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I'm more, I'm optimistic. Yeah. Um, even in the Indian Middle East, it's changing. All these cultural issues surrounding marriage that I've talked about apply to a lot of girls, but they simply don't apply to some of my friends. Some of my friends have no pressure whatsoever to get married. Yeah. Their parents are sponsoring them and sending them to do further education. They're supportive of them just getting married whenever they want to, the concept of marriage. But all those things don't matter to those parents. And that's really good. That's amazing. Is it a small section of mem- a small section of girls? Yes, but there is a small section of girls that makes yeah. me happy. You know, oh, you don't right. have all those pressures. Right, right. Um, sure, there's the more conservative end, but there is a more liberal end and there's the middle in between. So that's, that's really good. The middle is there. That's really good. The, there, is a, there is a more liberal section. That's great. Numbers are moving. That's great. Uh, there's a lot of focus in the industry, rightly so, about diversity and inclusion right now. I'm very happy. Yes, sure, different companies are doing it to different levels, but the overall theme is there. Appreciate it's a little bit of a buzzword right now, fair. However, it's still there. It's still being talked about. And if it's being talked about so much, somewhere, someone will be doing things towards it. So I'm more optimistic. Um, again, particularly in the Middle East, there's a lot of focus on bringing women and showcasing the women who are presently in roles. Uh, the women themselves are speaking to each other a lot more. Things like this, things like the podcast, things like the work you're doing. You know, you've done your brand world and now you're not satisfied and saying, okay, you know, you yourself have gotten married and have a baby and you're not saying, okay, that's it, done and dusted now. You're, you're trying to spread your message. You're, you're doing a lot more STEM outreach. There are people like you who are doing amazing things. There are just so many forums now available. Even the pandemic has actually made it easier because, you know, we can all jump on virtual conversations like this one. We're not restricted by location anymore. So I feel optimistic. I feel things are changing. And yes, there are some difficult problems, but together, I think we can resolve those problems. Oh, gosh, I love what you just said. I love that optimism and hope and everything that you just shared. Um, and you once like, I know this to be true, but you, you mentioned that it's like the Western um, way of doing things really sets the tone for the rest of the world. <clears throat> so if it, if it's, if it becomes a law or it's put into practice in North America, then Europe and other countries will follow. Um, how true is that? Do you, do you think like in the U.S. and North America, we're kind of setting the pathways for the rest of the world? Well, historically, it's been true. You know, obviously, aviation started effectively in the Western world. You know, we've had manufacturers, we've had the airlines, regulations, staffing profiles, even cultural perceptions began there. Didn't you? you had a male pilot, you had a female cabin crew. That didn't come from other parts of the world, it came from the West, really. And these things have been adopted around the world, but when you really think about it, you think, I mean, the use of English, for say, you know, the entire aviation industry uses English. Why? And we've, we've certainly seen accidents in the past that, that have arisen as a result of that. We have not done a lot of research into regional cultures. Again, we know that from the past, we've had some safety accidents due to this issue that 
you know. So it makes me wonder how we just adopted around the world variation culture instead of really making sure it's adapted to our cultures, to adapt it to our the regions we're in. So like that's where there's a lot of research that still needs to be done. Um, you know, there are major strides around the world that we need, perhaps we need to look at. There is a lot of focus, right? Like I said, there's a lot of talk about diversity and inclusion right now. Just about every company has a DNI council, you know, recruitment targets, diversity targets and whatnot. But it seems to be fairly localized. Uh, in fact, we wrote about this to the UK House of Commons and they were requesting the industry's input on how do we improve diversity and inclusion aviation. We said, don't just look in the UK, look towards the rest of the world. And actually, if you look at the Middle East and Asian cultures, you have a lot of good things that you can take from, uh, you can learn from, rather than just being focused on the initiatives that are coming from the West. If you, if you, if you just look at some statistics, um, you know, five of the major airlines in Africa are led by women compared to none in the UK. In the UAE, the two major airlines that we have in Emirates, they, they say that 42 to 50% of their workforce is female. Sure, it drops quite a bit when you talk solely about pilots, but regardless, you know, they have, they have females in engineering, planning, administration, everything, infrastructure and whatnot. And uh, this aerospace and design and manufacturing company in Strata, it's a manufacturing facility, it's a factory, and yet they employ 86% women. Oh, wow. That is a fascinating number. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And they're all, they're mostly Emirati. I wouldn't say all, but Emirati women in a manufacturing factory. Yeah, can you imagine? That's not something you, you see in the West world. 40% of the UAE space agency's technical personnel are women. Technical, not the administrative people. The flight training schools in the region state that 11% of their pilot students are female. That's twice the industry average. And again, if you move towards India, you know, women are doing all roles in the Air Force. And again, there's some numbers put down here. There are 1,875 female officers serving in the Indian Air Force. Um, and, you know, more than 600 of the country's 5,100 commercial pilots are, are women. And overall, in Asian culture, like myself, my sister and I are both engineers. Two children in our family, both of them are engineers. And that's common across most families. Uh, we've had great progress in STEM uptake. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm part of a lot of groups where they're doing a lot of STEM outreach and really trying extremely hard to get girls into STEM. I'm sitting there thinking, every girl I know is an engineer. Yeah, exactly. It's not come about easy. The reason that's the case is that this work was started decades ago. I feel like, you know, the diversity and inclusion work is really about five, ten years recent in the, in the Western world, whereas in places like India, Asia, and Middle East, the diversity work started decades ago. And there's been a lot of government messaging. There's been a lot of uh, public transport changes. That people have provided street lighting, things that you don't necessarily again relate to aviation, but have actually made a big difference. And uh, there have been scholarships for underrepresented groups for going back decades. And this has really changed 
the makeup of who takes up STEM in, in Asian cultures. Um, again, in the Middle East, we've had lots of government-funded scholarships and training programs. And these were not just for the technical aspects. There were specific programs about interacting with the opposite gender. Because again, in the Middle Eastern culture, it's not common to interact between boys and girls. I mean, my schooling was segregated. So I went to a girls' school and the boys were sick separately. But obviously in the workforce, it's not like that. And it can be very hard for girls coming from an all-girl situation, uh, particularly the Middle East, when you have different cultural and religious expectations, to then suddenly come into the workplace and be expected to work alongside men, you know, sitting beside them, shaking hands, talking to them and whatnot. So it can be quite an, a bit of an adjustment. But the government invests in those programs. They have created these programs to, to teach you how to do those things, to make you comfortable in those such situations. Um, the, the role of networking and mentoring, that's been picked up by the Indian Institutes of Technology in India, who have, who have launched a university program for this. Um, Mubadala Aerospace Group in, in the Middle East, they're working with their female employees to establish a mentoring program specifically to get more women into the boardroom. And they were offering daycare facilities and breastfeeding facilities on site. That's amazing. That is a step in the right direction to empowering women or really giving women the space to be themselves, to show up to work as themselves um, and, and contribute in that way. Um, I love all the statistics you're sharing. And I, I, when I went to India, I was talking about the shortage of women pilots. And one of the women stopped me and she said, honey, that's not an issue in India. We have a lot of women pilots. Um, and at that time, it was like 24% of their commercial pilots were women. And I just, it took me so back. I, I mean, I always knew India was leading with like gender um, equality and like gender balance in their technical fields. But to hear that statistic, it just shocked me. And I was like, why are people not taking notes? Why, you know, like, you guys are being so, you guys have gone about it in such a, a great way. Um, I don't know if it's just that the world needs to come together and exchange notes because there are so many opportunities in America, but it's tough to find the talent that will pursue a career in engineering or something very technical. And I feel like in other parts of the world, you have very qualified and willing and inspired people, but the opportunities are not um, as fruitful as it is in the Western countries. So how can we come to a place where we exchange ideas and really work towards a better, diverse and inclusive industry? That, that's what it is. You're right. We have to make these groups come together and talk to each other and be accepting, really. I mean, I know... I feel like the podcast up to this point seems very contradictory. On one hand, I'm saying, oh, yeah, we have a lot of cultural issues. <laughs> and on the other hand, I'm saying, yeah. oh, but we're doing great. But actually, it's true, though. That's true, though. Yeah. You know, people, people yeah. in Middle East nation cultures are working twice as hard to bring women into aviation because of these cultural challenges. Right, right. But we're actually seeing better results as well. You know, I think it's a very dynamic and complex um situation. And so it is a little contradictory, but that's just the reality of it. I think it's not a very simple explanation or answer, and it's going to take some time to get there. Absolutely. But thank you for sharing those statistics. I had no idea. It was very informative. 
Um, and just to kind of wrap things up here, I know for me, for women in my, um, in my circle, it always goes to how important community is for women. I mean, it just gives us perspective. It gives us an opportunity to share, you know, where we are and, and talk it through with the people around us. Um, how has community supported you being in the part of the world that you are? Um, and, and how are other women with each other in the industry and in other parts of the world, specifically where you are? Well, I think community is absolutely critical. It's the only place where you can actually talk to each other about the challenges you're facing. I mean, I'm very much used to being an only. So in a room, I'm the only woman in a room. And in fact, sometimes, most of the times, actually, it's a double only. So you're the only woman and you're the only person of color in the room. But when you meet with these organizations, you find you're no longer the only. Everyone there is like you. So I like to participate in a lot of these groups and I encourage all of my colleagues and peers to keep adding them into various groups and whatnot because a lot of people are doing really good jobs. As you said, Meredith Sultan, has, she's doing great work with the women in aviation Middle East. She can talk to the fellow ladies in Arabic and really get to the nitty-gritty of what's happening you know, in her home, how to deal with these situations because someone somewhere has gone through, not the same, It's every family is different, but something similar. And they can say, oh, yeah, I tried this. Can you, what, do you want to try that? Or even just to maybe, you know, have a rant about what's going on at work. And, oh, yeah, today I faced the situation. It was really annoying. And then I say, oh, yeah, it's annoying. And sure, there's not a lot we can do about it right now. But at least you've been able to share those feelings with someone who can understand. So someone who's outside that circle might not be able to understand what you're going through. Uh, there's another colleague of mine named Christina Unetis. She runs a brilliant group of high-performing women across the Middle East. It's called the Top of Her Game Tribe. These are all Arabic women in general, uh, Arab people from Saudi, people from the UAE, people from Kuwait. Um, and most of the meetings are held in, in a combination of Arabic and English, where, again, this is not an aviation-specific thing, but she... Because aviation has such a good representation of women in the UAE, they come and share lessons to the rest of the industries, other industries, and they say, well, this is what we're doing in aviation to support women. Maybe you can take these ideas to your own organizations. And that's quite helpful. That's very fascinating, really. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Community is the most important thing. And actually, from today's conversation, what we've been having is probably the only solution to all these problems and the only way we can move forward. We need to have these conversations amongst ourselves. We need to have these conversations across borders. And that's just how we build the needle. Oh, man, I love what you just said. I feel like we could talk for hours about this topic. And it's, it's sad that at least for me, I don't hear these conversations a lot at conferences um, or like shared publicly. We all have it internally when we get together, but publicly to give perspective. Um, so I'm glad we're here today recording this and sharing this kind of a conversation with the world. Um, and I, I hope I know it's going to bring a lot of good and it's going to encourage women if you feel alone in the aviation or aerospace industry most likely you're not alone. There's someone who has experienced something similar. So reach out to your local group. If you find that you don't connect with the group, there are so many organizations out there 
try the next one, you know, and it's incredible. Um, just the weight that is lifted off your shoulders when you meet a group of people that have a similar background to you and they've experienced similar experiences. And like, just knowing that you're not alone is really relieving. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm just so in love with this conversation and, um, I'm glad we're, we're doing this today. <laughs> um, Finally, this is the last question that I ask all of my guests is that what is the best advice you have received as a woman in aviation that you can pass along to our audience? My, my best advice would be networking. I keep repeating this message. I've, I've been, this was the word that was told to me by various people saying that's going to be your key to aviation. And I started doing it and it's really hard to go out to these events and start talking to people and introduce yourself. It's very, very hard but the results are absolutely worth it. So if, if you're someone who's, who's struggling and you don't like to do this, you're, you're an introverted kind of person, that's fine. And I say, yeah, that's okay, but you can join a group, not talk in the group, and maybe you can do something that you're more interested in, like writing an article or you know, publishing something that you're interested in. And then someone who's an extrovert like me will go and use that as a topic for conversation because I'm also looking for something to talk to you about. So, you know, that helps me and you don't actually have to do the job of going and introducing yourself. So regardless of where you are, I really highly encourage you to go do some networking. Finding mentors is really critical. You'll find friends, you'll have connections, you'll have links that you can use, even to find inspiration. And so I feel like networking is something we should all engage in. And it's not, it's not a difficult thing to do. Um, well, I have to say it's a difficult thing to do. However, the results are worth it. And the more you do it, the better you become at it. Yeah, absolutely. It, the, fun, the funny part is, though, the, the theme of this conversation, it's not a voice I've received, but I read somewhere, I think it was a female politician. I read this piece called The Most Important career decision you'll ever make in your life is choosing the person you'll marry yeah and i was like eh, i mean it didn't really make sense to me at the time when i read it but now that i reflect on it it's absolutely true oh my gosh i think we need a part two <laughs> to talk about that but yes <laughs> your partner really helps shape your future i mean that literally is your partner but yeah that's a very good point so if you do get a choice in your partner, choose wisely, I suppose, is <laughs> second bit of advice. I second that wholeheartedly. <laughs> oh, gosh. Wow. Well, Lalithia, it's been such an amazing hour or so to sit down and talk to you about this. Thank you so much for your time, for your contributions, for being a great role model to women in engineering, women of color, um, and role model to even me, just to see you doing what you're doing um, with your background and just making a difference. It's so inspiring. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much for your time. And this has been such a treat for me. 